right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Fear Cast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, anxiety spectrum disorders, and getting your life back. I'm your host, Kevin Foss, and uh, I'm a licensed therapist specializing in OCD and anxiety spectrum disorders. Um, Thank you all so much for joining me. Um, For those of you who are new, this is a question and answer based podcast. If you have a question you want to have me answer, you want me to talk about, yammer on about perhaps, on a future episode, go over to fearcastpodcast.com. Send me a question over there by clicking on the submit a question link. You can also send me an audio question. I love audio questions. I think the audience likes audio, audio questions. The best way to do that. So a couple ways. One. Go over to Fear, uh, Fear has, go over, well, yeah, go over to fearcastpodcast.com. You can send me the link to a recorded audio. So upload it to Google Drive, something like that. Send it to me, send me the link over at, um, by clicking on the submit a question link. You can go over to Instagram. I am Fearcast Podcast over at Instagram. All you have to do is send me a DM over there and record your, record your question in the little bar underneath. I have instructions on the thing, but you'll see it there. Um, you can also just record it and email it to me at questions at fearcastpodcast.com. That's another way to do it. It will all get to me that way. So either way, if you have a question that you would like me to go over, I will be more than happy to read it, consider it, and likely put it up on a future episode. Um, audio questions, as I've mentioned, get priority. They get to get pushed to the top of the list, and they will be answered as soon as I can, as soon as reasonable. And, um, I, uh, and I just think that it makes it more interesting to hear your voice rather than just hearing my voice. Anyhow, we'll just jump right into this. I've been posting a lot more video content. This format, uh, for those of you who are listening to the podcast, um, just regular podcast, um, iTunes or wherever you listen to it, you are not seeing the visual. I am recording myself. I'm putting this back up on YouTube I'm going to give that a try. Um, it's uncomfortable. It's not my go-to, but I also know that, you know, people want to access or people access information in a lot of different ways. Video is one of those ways. So I'm trying that medium out. It's not what I tend to do. So hopefully it goes well. So before I get into the questions, and I'm going to answer two questions today. They're going to be uh, not audio questions. They're going to be text questions. Um, so... I've mentioned this before, this kind of parallel that I have with um, kind of what I see with OCD recovery and, and anxiety recovery and my back pain recovery. And yes, they're, they're, they're not the same. They are uncomfortable. They're not the same, but it, it's an analogy. Go with me on this. So one of the things I mentioned a while ago is that uh, I, I notice I have this tendency that like I'll throw my back out and things will be like really bad and it'll be really uncomfortable. So I go to my chiropractor, I do a bunch of exercises, and then I, you know, I start to get better. My body starts to feel better. And then a couple weeks after I stop doing the exercises. And then six months later, I wonder why I threw my back out again. This is kind of akin to folks where they, you know, anxiety kicks up, they do a lot of compulsions, they may see a therapist a couple of times, they start to feel a little bit better and they go, okay, I'm fine, and then they drop off. I'm starting to see this pattern, and something interesting in this recovery process um, I, I've, I've noticed and wanted to share uh, is it kind of builds further on this, um, on this example. I've noticed that, uh, and well, first off, I, I threw my pack out um, before, like right before the summer conference, so this was four months ago, 
so three months ago, it was a, it, this is the longest and it's hurt a lot. So I, I've seen a physical therapist and I've done exercises. And since I've seen a physical therapist, every day I'm doing exercises. I'm doing squats or I'm doing bridges or I'm doing like everything is like core and my glutes. Not that you needed to know, but I have a sit down job. So anything related to like moving your body and, and standing doesn't work very well on me and um, you can talk to your therapist about what their core is like if you would like but anyways so something I've noticed is that so I'm doing exercises every day a couple of times a day and it's and for the first couple of weeks I'm talking maybe three four weeks moderate improvement a little bit of improvement and I'm talking so like every day a couple of times a day I'm doing these exercises and it, and, it, and it's hard right it's not easy stuff that I'm doing my my physical therapist started me what you know would be easy for my body and then just said you know just keep doing this be consistent about it you don't need to do you know he said you don't need to do every exercise I've given you just do as many as you can he's very compassionate in that way so I do as many as I can and some days I miss and some days I do all of them and some most days I'm just kind of doing most of the exercises anyways so I'm keep pushing and then like a week ago after consistent work, I've suddenly started to notice that my body feels a little bit better. Now, I'm not saying good, but better. And there was this turn where like, I can sit for an extended period of time and not be in agony. I can get up in the morning and not feel in pain. And this is a big one for me. I can wake up in the morning and sneeze and I'm not in excruciating pain. This is alarming and this is wonderful for me. Um, for some reason, I don't know, am I the only one out there who like, they wake up in the morning and first thing is they sneeze. I don't know. Anyways, so that's my, that's my journey. Anyways, so I am able to do this. I'm also noticing that I have less drive to do the exercises. Oh, I see the process happening already. So it's important for me to be consistent and, and determined I don't want to go back to where I was. I don't want to keep going backwards, which means I need to be intentional. I need to be deliberate. I need to be, I, I, I need to be kind of forceful with myself to do it, finding a way to do it. I've been trying in between sessions with clients. I'll do, I'll get over here and I will do, I'll do planks for a, you know, a, a minute. I'll do leg exercises. I'll do whatever other things I can do here in the office and then get back to work. Finding ways to get the work done when I can because if I don't, if I just say, you know what, I'm going to wait until tonight after work, that's when I'll do it. I might not. I might not. I mean, I might. I might, but it's, you know, after putting the kids to sleep and making dinner and trying to clean up and all that stuff, it's I don't have a whole lot of energy. And maybe, you know, after work or school or whatever responsibilities you have, to then sit down and write a script does not sound very fun. So finding ways to incorporate your exercises into your day is going to be so key, so key to your recovery. Um, I've heard people say, and I've said it here, do your exercises, whatever your exercises are for anxiety, as early as you can in the day. Start your day with it. It will help because once you've done it, doesn't mean you don't then do it the rest of the day, but you've done it and now you can get on with your day and it's you know, the, the heavy bulk of responsibility of, of you staying on top of your recovery has been done, 
rather than keep kicking it off and maybe not doing it. Anyway, so this is as much a reminder to anybody out there who's looking to see recovery as, as much as it is for me in my recovery. So let's get on to the questions after I have some coffee. <laughs> okay, so this first question comes from Anna. Anna says, hi, Kevin, love the podcast. Thank you so much for all the help. This is a quick one. Can, quote, settling on the label of bisexuality be considered a compulsion? I've been struggling with, they say HOCD, so sexual orientation OCD. So I've been struggling with sexual orientation OCD for some time, and I've been working with my therapist to overcome this. For context, I'm a woman in a heterosexual relationship with a man. Recently, my brain has decided, hey, just settle on calling yourself bi. Then you don't have to decide. And this, uh, this for a while causes a moment of calm, but then later just makes, uh, just makes e- me even more anxious and confused. Could this be a compulsion? If so, should I stick with this label or dismiss it just like it would any other sexual orientation thought? Thanks again. So, Anna, this is a great question. So, so settle on the term. So, my, my rule of thumb, settle on the term bisexuality if it's true. If it's true. If you are noticing personally consistent desire, personally consistent attraction, personally consistent interest in same-sex individuals, as well as opposite-sex individuals, then sure, settle on the term. Because you're not necessarily settling on the term, you are acknowledging the truth. You're acknowledging a reality. But again, settling on it, if it's true, if there's evidence for it. If not, if you're just kind of placating the anxiety and saying, you know what, my brain's saying I, I'm bi or I'm gay, so, you know, I'm, I'm just going to kind of just say say this and, you know, kind of get a little bit of a reprieve from the anxiety, but then all of a sudden it comes back. That sounds like a compulsion. It sounds like something that often happens where people just say, I, I just, I'll say whatever I need to say, do whatever I need to do just to make that anxiety come down. And once I've done it, I feel better. I feel better for a little bit. And this is what compulsions do. They work, kind of. They work for a short time. And then that anxiety will start to come back after the anxiety, or after the, the calm and the peace and the reassurance subsides. It's a false sense of security. So, if it's true, yes. If not, rather than saying you're by, we can say, maybe. Maybe I am. I, I don't know. Or maybe not even, I don't know. That's not, that's not the best response. It's, it's, it's not important. Whether I am or I'm not, I'm in a relationship with this dude, and he's great, and he's wonderful, or he's fun, or he's just fine for now, but whatever. It's, it's you know, this, this isn't a conversation with my brain that needs answering. You're sidestepping the whole debate, You're not saying, yes, it's true. You're not saying, no, it's not true. You're just saying, this is an avenue that I don't need to investigate. And then you redirect back to the relationship, back to whatever you're doing that day, back to listening to the podcast, whatever, you get the idea. Rather than trying to convince yourself of one thing, you're just saying, you know, I'm just going to put a Band-Aid on this of bisexuality and say that's good. So, sidestep it. Now, in some contexts, there could be good reason to say you're bi as an exposure, as a way of amping up the anxiety. 
and I, I kind of, I, I've historically called this the eye roll approach. When your brain says, you're bi, you go, sure am. Okay, I guess I am. Yep, I guess I am now. In other words, we agree with whatever label your brain gives you. We say, sure, whatever it is. Antelope, yep. Bisexual, yep. Trans, of course. And we, we agree with whatever your brain happens to give, and you keep on going, knowing that, knowing that the debate the argument, that effort to try to get to the real and true and deep and honest answer is a never-ending just pit. So there's a context in which you could just agree with it. But from the context of your question, I would just say we're gonna, you, could, you could do well to sidestep it. Again, unless it is true. But that would be something to talk about with your therapist and acknowledging. And of course, as I say that, I hear your anxiety going, oh my gosh, Kevin thinks that you're bisexual. You've got to be bisexual. Of course you are. So, this isn't a long, protracted debate. Consider your heart of hearts. Within a, f- within a few moments, are you, are you not? Yes, no. And then move on. The more that you investigate, the more that you keep searching, the more that you keep evaluating, the more that that is going to suck you into rumination and and the deep pit. All of this that I'm talking about ought to be discussed with the context with your therapist so they can start unpacking these and their therapist will know you and whether or not this guidance is going to be just compulsive or just an invitation for more and more anxiety. So at the end of the day, having that perspective of, I don't know, maybe I am, maybe I'm not, but I'm with this dude. So I'm going to keep this relationship with this dude as good or as bad or as weird as it is, and I'm going to keep going. So, and I hope that answers your question. I know it was kind of a short one, but um, you said this is a quick one. It was. So I'm going to answer the second one here. So let's move on to Sarah. So Sarah says, I've started with a range of OCD and OCD-linked issues throughout my life, including health anxiety, eating disorders, hyper-awareness, and fixation on eye floaters. I also have multiple different circumstances, or I've I've had multiple different circumstances throughout my life, which has made it very hard to overcome the eating disorder until recently. Um, My question is about how to address feelings of fear of the worsening of symptoms or sensations. I've, uh, I get paralyzed by the fear that, I, that my eye floaters mean that my eyesight is getting worse and that I'm to blame for developing them at such a young age due to my health history, uh, health history of eating disorders. I can't stop obsessing about the, quote, implications of the eye floaters instead of just accepting them. And, uh, and uh, it, it is giving me intense anxiety and increased guilt for suffering from an eating disorder. So, Sarah, I, I, I really appreciate this question. I'm so sorry that you're having to go through this struggle with, with so, so many issues, so many things, but also that guilt that's heaped on yourself, that's adding to the pain of the situation that you're in. So, I, I'm, Sarah, did you say you're seeing a therapist? I don't know. If you are, great. If you're not, I'd hope you're seeing a therapist to kind of work through some of these things. But I just want to address kind of, I'm hearing two main parts to this. So you said I get paralyzed, where is it? I get paralyzed by the fear of the eye floaters that my eyesight is getting worse. 
It's issue number one. And that I'm also to blame for, develop, for developing them at such a young age due to my health history of eating disorder. Two. So let's go with the first one. So I get paralyzed by the fear of my eye floaters and the eye, the eye sight is getting worse. So if someone, if you came into my office, Sarah, and you had this question about whether or not you have eye floaters and whether or not they, they are getting worse because of an eating disorder, that would be something that I would want to check out with an eating disorder specialist, or that would be something I would want to add a, ask a physician, your, your doctor, just to see, because I, I, I don't know, I'm sure that's something that I could Google and just have not, but it's something that I would check with them to see if, that's, if that is even a thing. Now, what, what you're doing with that is you're, you're trying to just gather more evidence, because right now it sounds like your brain, and this is just what I'm hearing, and maybe I'm, I don't understand something, and that's certainly very possible, but it's it's something that you'd want to check out if your brain's just throwing out these accusations or what it says or these medical facts without any grounding without any any truth behind them they can take you in all sorts of weird directions because your brain is going to give you all sorts of very odd very inaccurate medical advice and if it's if every bit of advice quote advice is taken as a fact then yeah it's it's it can kind of wind you up in nuts which is unhelpful ocd is doing enough of that but or not but so go chat with a doctor one doctor a trusted doctor someone who knows you someone who, who knows what you're going through again perhaps you're perhaps you're eating disorder specialist if you have one if you have seen one throw it out to them Go with their answer. Now, I, I am unaware of any information that would say eating disorders will lead to eyesight getting worse, nor will it lead to eye floaters. Now, I'm going with that just for now and again. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And I more than, if I'm wrong, send me an email. I want to know about it. Um, but you can use that to challenge the legitimacy of the evidence. You can say, hey, brain, there's no evidence for that. But it's also to say... I don't know if my eyesight is getting worse. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. It's a terrifying thought to think that your eyesight is getting worse. I Man, if anybody out there has an Oculus, so I, I just got uh, an Oculus and I, I, there's, a, there's a thing called, oh heck, I'm gonna get, forget the name of it. It's like a journey through eyesight or something like that. So you put on the VR goggles and it's black in this, you, you watch this, uh, this video, and it's, it's a narrative of a guy who lost his eyesight, and he describes it, at, he, he audio records himself throughout his journey, it's over a couple of months or even a couple of years, and he talks about what is different and what he notices about his sight and what he notices is, is changing and how, and just what the whole experience is. And it is, I, I, had, to, I had to stop myself just the one time I was listening to it. It was, it was overwhelming and it was, it was sad. It was sad. If you have an Oculus, that, Sarah, that might be something worth, worth listening to. Now, again, there are two things about that. One, it's, it, it would be sad to lose your eyesight, but if your anxiety is grabbing onto that and saying, I need to do a bunch of rumination and checking and asking and, and, and evaluation and constant uh, hypervigilance of my experience to make sure that I'm lo not losing my eyesight, then what we need to do is ultimately say, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. I don't know if I, Kevin, am going to lose my eyesight at some point in the future. We don't know. 
but we are going to say, that's not something that I can control or fix right now. So we could cer- you could certainly do exposures to this. You could do that, that Oculus um, eyesight thing. Uh, writing scripts about how your eyesight's progressively getting worse, because I wonder if that might be one of the more f- prominent features of fear here. If there, are, if there are eye floaters there, there are. They're innocuous things. A lot of people have, have eye floaters. We have sensations all over our body. Some of us have tinnitus. And our body focuses on them, gets distracted. But your brain, it sounds like, is telling you this story about what life is going to be like because of this and what your future is. And it sounds terrifying. So... Lean into that. Sit with a thought, but remember, we're sitting with a thought and saying, you know, this thought is uncomfortable and scary, but it's not a guarantee. It's not a promise. It's not a fact. It's just uncomfortable, but I can sit through discomfort. You, Sarah, can sit through discomfort. So you sit with a thought. You write that story out, and you you sit through it over and over and over again. If you were in my office, we'd be watching that Oculus video. Both of us would be watching that. We'd do it every day. We'd do it twice a day. And over time, it doesn't mean that you want your eyesight to be lost. It doesn't mean that it's going to improve your eyesight. But you're going to acknowledge that there's a thought and there's a sadness about losing your eyesight, but there's nothing that I can do right now to fix the future or to control the future or this one potential outcome. So we sidestep that by saying, maybe I will. So how am I going to live my best life today? What's more important to me today in this interaction, in this moment, in this day? That's the stuff to focus on. And eyesight will be somewhere down the line, and you'll deal with that if and when you get there. But today ain't that day. Now, the second bit I want to go over, it says, and I, you said that, uh, and that I am also to blame for developing them, eye floaters, at a young age due to my health history of eating disorders. So what I'm hearing in that, and I'm wondering if this is what's going on, is, is a heaping amount of guilt and subsequent shame for the experience that you you have, for the life that you have. I I hear this from a lot of people. They say, I did this to myself. I made myself worse. If I had only just done X, if I had only not done Y. And they kind of use that as a bludgeon against themselves in their recovery process. And it doesn't help at all. They're basically just beating themselves up for something that they did or they didn't do or a perceived sense of responsibility for the process. Now, at the end of the day, it gets them nowhere. It doesn't motivate them. It doesn't help improve your mood. It doesn't help improve your your mindset or your attitude towards the situation that you're in. It often just serves as a way of beating yourself up and sapping energy and, and, and motivation to, to change. And we just settle into... Sometimes it's, I don't deserve to be better. I don't deserve to improve. I don't deserve to have a good life because I'm such a big dum-dum and I did this to myself. Now, that might not be the language you're using. And Sarah, you might not be experiencing this, but I'm willing to bet someone out there hearing this has thought that. So, guilt and shame are incredibly big blockers in the way of recovery. And it's, it's, it's something where 
I can't say just get over it. You can't say just get over it. A family member or your own therapist can't say just stop feeling so shameful or get over the guilt or saying you didn't do anything wrong. It doesn't get at that feeling of shame, that feeling of responsibility. The way that we get a quote, get rid of it. Now, we may never get rid of shame. We never, may never get rid of that feeling of guilt, but we can minimize it and we can minimize our continued reinforcement of that cycle. And one of the ways to do that is first to take a soft, compassionate, loving, understanding perspective towards ourself in our process. We have all done things didn't turn out the way that we wanted them to. And that's called normal. We all do that. I've done that. And it, it's not like, Sarah, you set out to say, you know what I'm going to do, self? I'm going to do something that's going to really mess me up. I'm going to do something that's going to screw up my eyesight and destroy my body and my future. That seems like a great idea. We make decisions for reasons. And it is only later down the line, typically, that we see we could have made a different decision or maybe had we other information, we would do something different or think something or act differently. But, but we didn't have that at the time. You and I are out there just trying to make the best of the life that we're in. And sometimes we make mistakes. I do. I'm going to make mistakes today that tomorrow or later today I'm even going to decide Man, I wish I did something different. <sighs> part of that is being human. A part of that, all of that is being human. And we need to acknowledge that for you and acknowledge that for other people, as you would acknowledge that for other people. Um, they call this common humanity. Acknowledging that we, you and me, Sarah, we're in this together and that we are all experiencing this and trying to do our best. And that's kind of what we're out here doing and we make mistakes. So if you'd be willing to give that compassion to someone else, to someone else, maybe you can give that self or self, maybe you can give that to yourself. Is that possible? And in the process of doing this over time, and in the process of pulling back on these statements of guilt and shame and beating yourself up and the negative language, over time your attitude starts to soften towards yourself and you might start start to see that you know you deserve to have a full and happy life. And maybe anxiety is going to be along the, along the road with you. And that's, again, that's part of what it means to be human. Maybe these thoughts are going to be there, and maybe that's what it means to be you sometimes, is to have those thoughts. I have my thoughts that I don't love, and they just kind of go along with me. I just kind of ride those waves. I do the best I can. I try to hold it together and seek improvement where I can and build my communication and strengthen my relationships and I succeed and I fail. And hopefully the progression is upward, steady upward uh, movement. So, so I, I, I want to end with this. So this is coming from uh, Kimberly Quinla's book. The name of it is The Self-Compassion Workbook for OCD. Sarah, I would encourage you to get this, to start going through the book in seeking a, a compassionate perspective towards your own recovery, towards your thoughts, towards your uh, eye floaters, and towards this anxiety. So, um, Quinlan in this describes a, or offers a, a, a ton of exercises, but um, one thing that I would encourage you to do is to write a compassionate letter to yourself. 
So I'm going to read just her example, and it's kind of very general, and it may not describe your situation, Sarah, but you can check this out. This is coming from page 54 of her book. So I'll just read it, and then, Sarah, maybe you can um, adapt it for yourself and, and read this every day, twice a day, three times a day. It doesn't mean, remember my ex- my example from this the earlier in the episode that I needed to, for my back, I needed to be consistent every day, multiple times a day. And it was only a month, month and a half through it that I started to see some change. Maybe this is what you're going to need for yourself to start every day reminding yourself of of, of why you deserve compassion and love and forgiveness for whatever you did or didn't do. And forgiveness may be the wrong word because forgiveness implies you did something wrong. You get what I'm saying, I hope. All right, so here's, here's uh, her script, and I'll just read this here. So um, again, from page 54 of Kimberly Quinlan's book, it says, Dear me, I know my intrusive thoughts are relentless and make me feel anxious, uncertain, and down on myself. Remember, No matter what thoughts I have, I will be right here supporting myself. I deserve warmth and peace of mind. It makes total sense that I've had such a hard time with these thoughts. My brain is simply trying to protect me. Sometimes it gets all worked up and makes things feel extremely dangerous. Many others have OCD and feel similar to me. I promise to be kind and gentle as I practice allowing this anxiety to be here. I have everything I need to get through this. It is my responsibility to manage my OCD. I know I can tolerate this discomfort, especially if I am self-compassionate with warmth and everlasting care, me. So, Sarah, take some time to write a compassion letter to yourself. What would you say to yourself? What would you say to a friend who had a similar situation as you? Would you beat them up? Would you tell them they don't deserve improvement? Would you tell them they don't deserve happiness or what an idiot they were? Or would you maybe say some things that that script said to your friend? I encourage you to say that to yourself to soften your own perspective towards you in your recovery. So, Sarah, I'm going to leave that here. Anna, I'm going to leave that here. So, if if you uh, if, if if you hear this, or if somebody else out there is hearing this and want to offer more encouragement, or if somebody's out there and and wants to add something that that I didn't say, or thinks that there's something that Anna or Sarah needed to hear, send it to me over at fearcastpodcast.com, and uh, or or again you can send it to me over at at Instagram at fearcastpodcast over there. So send me those questions or send me those those comments and I'll be sure to put those up on a future episode. So um, hopefully by now I would have put in the music uh, for the end. But um, I'll add here, thank you so much everybody for making it through another episode. Thank you so much for letting me be a part of your recovery journey. Um, I know there are a lot, there's a lot of podcasts out there, there's a lot of information out there and I'm so happy that these tools exist to get good information, to get helpful information as, as I hope some of the things that I've been saying have been helpful to someone out there. So keep pushing forward with yourselves, everybody. Please remember that the fear cast is not substitute for psychotherapy. If you need a little bit of help in your recovery, go over to fearcastpodcast.com and click on the find help link. And there's going to be some information up uh, there for you. So until next time, everybody take a risk, challenge yourself and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.